Tonight we're going to talk about what faith looks like, sounds like, what it does in the noise of guilt. Because if anything's noisy in our lives, guilt is maybe the noisiest. It's like the screaming baby that won't shut up. And we try to get it to be quiet. We try to, to muzzle that sound. We try to run away from it. But it's always there um, reminding us it's there. And so tonight we're going to look at Psalm 51. And next week we're going to look at Psalm 32. David wrote them both. David was a real man like you. David had trouble falling asleep at night because his mind was racing. David had dreams. David had disasters. David had bad days. He had good days. What we're about to read is a real man's life being poured out in front of our eyes. This is the moment when David and his God's relationship was stretched to the breaking point. And we're like watching that bungee cord stretch all the way And we're like, that thing's breaking, that thing's breaking, it's going to break. I hear it, I hear it stretching, I hear it snapping, it's breaking. David's going to plunge to his death. And it comes back. You're like, whoa. And now you're left with a question, well, what about with me? When I fall off the bridge from my own foolishness, from my own stupidity, from my own failure, and I hear those strands breaking Am I falling to my death too? Or can my relationship with this God withstand it? That's what Psalm 51 is about. Father, uh, maybe that makes the hair on the back of our head stand up. Uh, But I know David and every other person who's belonged to you. And these are our words. And they hit close to home. We're not just like watching a man's life fall apart and get put back together in front of our eyes, but we know this is our lives. Our sin is ever before us. We can't undo what's happened. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. We can't unsay the words we've said that have caused destruction. We can't, yeah, we just, it's out there. And now we're left wondering, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do when you see us, when you hear what we've done? And God, tonight, I ask you, because you're kind, because you are gracious, let us see what you do in the face of our sin. Let us be encouraged by that. Let us come to you and tell you. Let us talk to you about it. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. There's three things uh, I want us to to pick out of here. The first is um, this kind of confession or repentance. I'll explain what those words mean in a minute. Uh, This written right here. Um, True repentance means we begin to compare ourselves to God, not to other people or other standards. It also means that we come to God empty and full. Empty-handed, we're not trying to pay him anymore, bribe him off, hey God, I'll do this if you do that. We come to him full of faith, though, and expectant. And true repentance means we actually move forward with a fresh start. We don't stay stuck there in despair. It's so different than the kind of confession that you and I are used to. Because the kind of confession that you and I are used to is what we see paraded on TV before us. At least once a year, this happens with an athlete, a musician, a politician, or a celebrity, right? I mean, just in the past few years, you have Lance Armstrong, after a decade of aggressively denying that he ever took steroids to win more Tour de France titles than anybody else, he says, oh, by the way, you remember when I said I never did that? I actually was doing it all the time. That's the only reason I won. Uh, Anthony Weiner, New York congressman, like his name is a joke now. 
sexting all these women around the country. He said someone hacked his Twitter account and they were like putting up these pictures, but they were pictures of him. And then he finally said, oh, actually it was me. Sorry, wife. Sorry, ladies. Um, And he resigned from Congress. Uh, Other politicians, you hear this from all the time. Bill Cosby's in the news again. 30 or 40 years of raping or abusing women. And he's saying he's kind of a little bit of a confession. Inappropriate things were done, I think is what he said. we, We hear this. This is what public confession sounds like to us. Brian Williams, the NBC news anchor, confessed that he was making up news stories when he, when he was in Iraq doing uh, war stories over there. He made it up because it made him look more uh, like a better reporter, like he's in a combat zone, when he never was. And with all of these people, what happens, there's a ritual, there's a process. The first step is denial. You, you deny it and you say, I can't believe that you would ever even think that I'd do something like that. Lance Armstrong did it, Anthony Weiner did it, Brian Williams did it, Bill Clinton did it, Bill Cosby did it. Everybody. That's, the, that's, the, that's the shtick. That's what you do. The second uh, step to the process is you begin, because your own conscience, your own soul is torn in two because you know you did it, you begin to kind of enter into the pseudo-confession phase. And this is the phase where you begin to say things like, mistakes were made, or I have regrets, uh, or I would do things differently the second time if I could do them again, or I'm human and I make mistakes, Right? It's kind of a confession, but you're not really saying anything, right? It's like, well, who's not human? Who doesn't make mistakes? So you really haven't said anything, but you're trying to cleanse your conscience. And then what usually happens is this just gets people's attention. It doesn't make it go away. You kind of can't wash sin off of you. It has a way of demanding to be exposed. And so people dig deeper. The media goes through all your past, and they find out you did it, and they release all the sordid details, and you have to come clean. And so you go in front of the cameras, the lights, and you have to say, I did it. I did all of it. And you have to own the consequences. And then the last stage, because we don't know how to deal with our guilt, is what I like to call the penalty box stage of guilt, or the timeout stage. We don't know what to do about guilt. And so the best we've come up with is just disappear. Brian Williams, Lance Armstrong, Kobe Bryant, whatever. Disappear. We, we, we don't want to hear from you. We don't want to see you. Stop going on TV, just float off into the distance. And maybe 10 years later, you can come back and be in a celebrity boxing match or have a your own reality TV show or something and do kind of the Oprah tour and go tell everybody about it, but disappear. And that's basically our way of saying maybe time will atone for your sins. Now, it's kind of, I said I don't want to make light of it. I'm not making light of it because we do that too. We go through the same phases, right? You do something, you did something, a roommate walked in on you, someone found your search history, girlfriend or boyfriend found the text you've been sending to somebody else. Um, I don't know, teacher caught you cheating. Or when you were a kid, someone in the neighborhood told their parents what you did and it got back to your parents. Um, we aggressively deny, we pretend like it never happened. Happy face, God talk. Uh, then we go to the pseudo confession. Maybe something did happen, generically. Then we get found out. Then we have to spill the beans. And then we go into hiding. We say, I can't pray because I just did this, this, and this. I need to wait until it's real. I'm not going to go to church. I just had sex with my boyfriend and my girlfriend. I, it wouldn't be authentic. I can't go to church. Like, God knows I'm faking it. I got to wait until I atone for my sins by this waiting period. And then I go back. Like, we do it, right? We do it. This is our story. 
And that's why it's not funny. I mean, it might have sounded funny when we're talking about politicians, but this is us too. And so I don't think we know what faith sounds like in the noise of guilt. Which is really good news because this psalm tells us. It sings to us what faith sounds like. The first thing I said is uh, when, when we're stumbling into kind of true confession, or if you want to know what faith sounds like in the noise of guilt, it's, it stops comparing itself to other people or other standards, and it starts comparing itself to God. Let me ask you this question. Who are you most prone to compare yourself to? Like walking down I'm all driving home, you know when your mind kind of goes on screensaver mode and just starts floating off? Who are you most prone to compare yourself to? Like usually it's other people in the AC like, man, I wish I had a body that looked like that or I wish I had a personality that was like that or I wish this person in my project group I was as smart as they are or understood the material as good as they are. Who do you compare yourself to the most? Don't raise your hand if you did because I'm going to argue with you if you did, but I don't think any of you just had the name God come into your mind. I sure as heck don't. Who's the person you find yourself most comparing yourself to? What I mean by comparing ourselves to God and why we don't do it, I mean comparing yourself to his love, his justice, his compassion, his generosity, his uh, righteousness, his purity. Like, none of us catch ourselves daydreaming, comparing ourselves to God, because when we do, we don't stack up so high, right? Like, you compare yourself to other people, you can come out on top. When you compare yourself to God, it's like, whoosh. We don't like that thought. We don't like that feeling, and so we avoid it, and we don't like to do it. And we medicate our guilt by comparing ourselves to lesser standards or lesser authorities, right? There's a few clusters of these. Like, culture is one. Culture is a convenient thing to compare yourself to, to, to come out on top. Because culture is always changing. Culture is always changing like what it stamps and says, okay, now this is good. It's not taboo anymore. Now this is good. Accept it. This is who you are. Embrace it. Run with it. Let's celebrate it. Be who you are. And you're like, well, that's convenient because that's what I deal with. So awesome. I passed the test. Because I'm comparing myself to kind of Hollywood culture or Washington, D.C., or New York culture, or Las Cruces culture, and I'm always on top. Or we compare ourselves to other people. I've told you all before, the, the, I loved being in a fraternity. It was a really good experience. I grew a lot. God met me there. But one convenient and fun thing about it is I was never the worst guy on the block. There was always someone worse than me. And so I always felt self-righteous and like a pretty good guy because I was comparing myself to other people. That was my standard. There's always people who get drunk more than you do. And so you never really feel bad about yourself. And the last one, and I think the worst, the most corrupt of all, <clears throat> and probably the ones we're most expert at, is we compare ourselves to our own gut or our own opinions. I mean, here's where we're like corrupt politicians. We set our own standards and then, hey, awesome, I, I, I measure up every time. I set the bar this low and lo and behold, I'm able to get over it. I measure up. You might think I'm a laid-back person. I don't really sweat the small stuff. It's just a little gossip. It's just a little porn. It's just a little bit of whatever. Like, why? Don't get your, don't get your feathers ruffled. Why worry about that? You see what we do? I just set a standard, and conveniently, it was low enough for me to get over, and so I feel great about myself. 
Because I measure up to my own gut opinions, to the standard of the authority of myself. And this is why, this is how we medicate our guilt. This is how we deal with our guilt. But it never goes away. Right? The guilt never goes away. You know why, like if, if you ever buy a house or a car from someone who's smoked in it before, do you know you cannot get the smell of cigarette smoke out of the paint or out of the car? You have to have what's done called ozone therapy. Rigo's dad does it. So if you're in Las Cruces and you have a house that smells like smoke, call Rigo. So they come in, I don't know the science behind it, but basically they have to leach that stuff out of the walls. Guilt is the same way. It gets in your bones, in your soul, in your mind, your emotions, your relationships, and it doesn't wipe off. You can't Febreze it away. It's there. Until, until no one less than God himself deals with it. And so this is how we uh, medicate ourselves. And so we don't like comparing ourselves to God because when we do, we fall short. And we feel bad. John says in chapter 3, here's the verdict. He says, here's the gist. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. Not because Jesus didn't give himself enough evidence. Not because I have too much doubt, I can't believe in him. Here's why people reject God. John says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. People don't come to God because when they do, he is so luminescent, so pure, so righteous that standing next to him will immediately expose you as unrighteous, impure, selfish, in it for yourself, whatever, right? That's kind of the anatomy of this. And and here's the point. David was still in the dark. David thought he was an okay guy even after he got a woman's husband murdered and he slept with her. And covered it all up. This is the ultimate political scandal. You think our presidents have done weird things? This is worse. Because none of our presidents have ever killed a man so they can sleep with his wife. That's the situation here. If you know 1 Samuel chapter 12, David is, uh, Jerusalem at the time was this really packed in city. People lived on top of each other. Little condos, super tiny inside the city walls. David's house was the palace. It was on the top of the hill. Which means David could see every other rooftop. One day, he's watching the sunset, beautiful sunset. Out of the corner of his eye, he sees some motion. It's a woman. Oh, she's gorgeous, and she's naked. And David does what all of us do when you see someone cute or something. You're like, you go find one of their friends, and you're like, hey, what's that girl like? Tell me about her. Oh, you should tell her the king asked about her. Like, you should tell her that I'd love to have her over for dinner one night. So the messenger goes and says, hey, the king asked about you. He wants to have you over for dinner. Her husband's off at war. She comes over. David is like, hey, they're hitting it off. Like, match made in heaven. He has sex with her that night. He continues to have sex with her a lot of other nights because he really likes her. And he finds out she's married. So he says, okay, this ain't going to work if he's in the picture. David's the king. David puts a hit on her husband, has him murdered. And then David doesn't even tell Bathsheba. He doesn't tell anybody Bathsheba, I am so sorry about your husband. That's awful. He says this line. There's this quote in 1 Samuel 12. He says, war is just unpredictable. People go off to war and sometimes they don't come back. I'm so sorry. Here, let me console you. 
Uh, so Uriah's out of the picture now. David eventually marries Bathsheba. That's how heartbroken he is. He's so caught up with guilt. He feels so bad that he covers it all up, says nothing happened, marries her happily ever after. Until God sends this guy named Nathan who comes to David and he says this. He says, um, let me find it. He says, why, David, have you hated the word of God to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah. David's like, crap, somebody knows. Secret's out. You killed Uriah with the sword and you took his wife to be your wife. You killed him with the sword. Nathan's like, David, God saw what you did last summer. Um, He knows what you did. And all of a sudden, guess what? David had been comparing himself to his own authority, the standard of his own opinion. And all of a sudden, Nathan's like, oh, but God. Let's stack you up next to God and see how you compare. And David's starting to hate life. David's starting to get squirmy uh, because now he's not such a great guy. When you compare yourself to God, you see yourself as you actually are. Please hear that tonight. Please hear that. Because you will never truly know yourself and you cannot truly know God if you continue to compare yourself to other people or other standards. It is not until you compare yourself to God that you begin to truly know yourself and truly know who he is. This is on the passage. David says in verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I see it finally. Because now I'm comparing myself to God and I am everything he is not. I am evil. I am wrong. I am selfish. I am murderous. And he is not. He says it in verse 4. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is wrong in your sight so that you may be justified in your words. That's your authority, your standard, and blameless in your judgment. And I think this is the seed of true repentance and true confession. If you want to know what does it look like What's the first glimmer of hope in your guilt? Whatever guilt you're feeling, what's the first glimmer of hope when God reenters the picture and you begin to compare yourself to him, not whatever standards you've made up? Okay, this feels bad. I get it. I know it's not fun to do. We suppress it. We run from it. But that's the first glimmer of hope. And for David, this was the saving grace. I know this um, in college. Like up until age 23, I was the good guy. Even though I was in a fraternity, um, when it came to drinking, I was the good guy. I didn't get drunk as much as the other guys. When it came to sex, I was the good guy. I was a virgin. I didn't go sleeping around with everybody. When it came to drugs, I never tried them. I was the good guy. They all did it. I didn't. When it came to church, I was there. They weren't. When it came to school, I was there. They didn't go. I was the good guy. And I didn't know myself, and I sure as heck didn't know God. Because all my life, I've been comparing myself to other people. This very low standard, and I always measured up. So I was self-righteous, I was proud, and I didn't need a God of grace. I talked about him, I said I did, but I didn't even feel any need for God to be merciful to me. It was just songs, it was just words. And it wasn't until this Bible study in my fraternity house where these other guys started to talk about a holy God who doesn't tolerate sin who doesn't put up with sin, that I started to think, 
bad words came to my head. I'm screwed. Because I don't measure up. And guess what? I started to find it very curious. I started to pay attention now when the Bible started talking about grace. Because I was like, if this is who I really am, then that's what I really need. Pure, 100% grace. It changed everything for me. It changed everything for David. And it meant that David and sinners have to approach God empty-handed and full of faith. That's our second point. Why empty-handed? Because if, if, if you are, if you and I are truly guilty, if the reason we feel guilty is because we are guilty, imagine that. That's a possibility. Maybe the reason we feel guilty is because we are guilty. Um, if we truly are guilty in that sense, then why do we have to come to God empty-handed? Why can't we bring God money and say, God, can I pay you off? You know, I've been to church this long in my life. I haven't done these things. Will you accept this money? I've said this many Hail Marys, this many rosaries, this many Our Fathers. I go to this many Bible studies. I'm really devoted. I'm really devout. Can you, why can't you bring him money? Why can't you bring him excuses? God, if you'd given me different parents, I wouldn't be the way I am. If you hadn't let me struggle with this sin struggle, I wouldn't be the way I am. Well, why, can't you, why do you have to come empty-handed? Why can't you come with excuses or money or bribes? God, if you do this, I'll do that. Or negotiations. Why can't you come with any of that? The song Rock of Ages uh, sits on that question. Or uh, Yeah, Rock of Ages. You've heard it. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There's another verse that, that says, even our own sadness over our sin doesn't merit anything before God. Even our tears, even my zeal, how passionate I am for God, how much I love singing praise songs, none of that does anything. God is not impressed because he's holy. He is not a judge who can be bribed. You know, it's like a murderer, a convicted murderer sitting there and saying, hey, judge, you want to see a magic trick? Look at this cool stuff I can do. As if to distract the judge from rendering a sentence. Like, God is not a corrupt judge. He's not a corrupt politician. He is fair. He is just. He is holy. That song goes on. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Empty-handed. We come to God empty-handed because he's a judge. You might be thinking, but why? I, I thought God was love. I thought he was gracious. Why can't God just let us off the hook? Why can't I say I'm sorry and he just says, okay, we're going to move on. We're getting over this. Why can't we just do that? Um, put yourself... Okay, let's take that approach. Let's say you say sorry and God just says, okay, I'll look the other way. Imagine this. You have to go knock on the door of Bathsheba's house and explain to Uriah's children where daddy is. And you say, I'm so sorry to tell you your dad was murdered. David knows the God of Israel, and the God of Israel is really nice, and he's really gracious, and he, 
he let David off the hook. I'm sorry. See you later. I'll pray for you. Is that fair? Is that just? Sorry, God is nice. He let your dad's murderer and the guy who slept with your mom off the hook. No. Those kids would be crying bloody murder, as they should, demanding justice. That's not, that's not love. That's corruption. And, uh, and not to mention what all this sin did to Bathsheba, did to David, did to all of the Israelites. Here's the point. Sin has a price tag. Sin always has a price tag. It always has a cost that demands payment, and it doesn't go away until that payment is made. Um, sin's like a genie in a bottle. It's like the chaos genie. Um, once that's open, you cannot get them back in the bottle. Y'all know this from our own mistakes. You cheat on a test, you get caught, you can't uncheat. The professor now knows your integrity's in question, your degree's in question. You can't get the words back that you yelled at your mom or your dad. You can't get your virginity back. You can't get your integrity back, your reputation back that you gossiped about the person. You can't make them measure up in the, in the eyes of those people. You can't. You can't undo sin. It's there. It has a price tag. And if it's that way, and God is holy, then he has to do something about it. He has to demand there's payment. David gets even more candid. He says, sin isn't just something that I did that day when I slept with her, but sin is something that I am. It's so much deeper than what I did that night. Behold, I was conceived in iniquity, which means he was born a sinner. He was born guilty. Um, he says, I w- my, my mother, I came from my mother's womb uh, in sin. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. He's trying to say sin doesn't go away. It has to be judged. And so the reason we come empty-handed is because God can't be bought off. And he's a judge. Here's the other part to this. And some of you need to really tune in now because you get all the judge stuff. You were raised in the church. You, you get it. Sin has to be punished. But I don't know if you get this part. I don't get this part too well. The other half of it is sin, or sorry, Faith doesn't just come to God empty-handed. It comes to him full of faith. Here's what I mean by this. Uh, we, David comes to God expecting God to be a savior of sinners. Even when the relationship is stretched to its breaking point, David comes back to the Lord because he expects God to forgive him. Not in a presumptuous way like God owes me, but in an expectant way like I know this God. I know what he's like. I know he'll forgive me. Sometime between when, David confront, when Nathan confronted David and when David wrote this song, there was this period that we don't know about of just intense battle and wrestling. You felt this. It's between the time from when you fell and failed and sinned and when somebody found out and you eventually found your way back to God. You remember that time? You're like, okay, what do I do? How do I get rid of this guilt? Like, can I, pray? can I talk to God? What do I do? How do I get rid of this? How do I undo what I did? David's wrestling with all that stuff, and at some point, either someone reminded him or David remembered himself what kind of God he had, what kind of God the God of the Bible was, that he was compassionate, gracious, and willing to blot out sin at his own cost. Look at verses 1 and 2. What does David appeal to? Does he say, but God... I know I messed up this time, but I did so many other good things for you. I've been there for you, God. No. 
Does he say, here's a bribe, God, I'll be the best king of Israel ever if you forgive me this time? No. What's he appeal to? God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David is reminding God and himself who God is. He's like, I remember. This is who you are. You are steadfast in your love. You are merciful. Therefore, he says, God, only you can do this. There's 14 verbs in like in verse 3 through 12. There are 14 verbs where David is asking God to do something for him. David is not talking to God about what David's going to do for God to make God happy with him again. David is pleading with God to do things for him. God, have mercy on me because only you can. Blot out my transgressions because only you can. Wash me all the way down to my bones because only you can. Make the bones you broke sing because only you can do that. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a new heart. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Open my lips. Deliver me. David isn't, has no hope in himself and all the hope in the world in this God, right? That's confidence. Without that confidence, how would you ever end up before the throne of God pleading for his mercy, pleading for him to wash you, to make you clean, to change your heart? You just won't go. And I think this is why we have our waiting periods and our timeout phases. We get it that we're guilty. We get it we messed up. We get it that someone has to pay for what we did but we don't get it. We don't remember what kind of God we have or what kind of God the Bible says God is. And so we stay away from him. True confession, true repentance comes to God empty-handed and full of faith or else it doesn't come to God. It stays away. So really quickly, how can you learn what God's going to do when he sees you the way you are? Through the Bible. The Bible is the window in for you to get to see real people with real sin, real guilt come before the real God and you get to see over and over and over again what God does in response. He doesn't ask you to believe by blind faith and just say, well, why don't you come to me and tell me what you did and maybe we'll see what I'll do. He lets you see thousands of times of him receiving broken, honest sinners who come to him for mercy And he gives it to them. That is there to increase your confidence that he will do the same for you. That he's able, that he's willing. Do you get it? The Bible, scripture, is how your confidence grows to the point that you know, I can run to him. This is a God that I can go and talk to because he's not just a judge. He's a savior of sinners too. And I'm a sinner. And so I can go to him. Did you know that's why the Bible's there? to increase your faith in the living God so that you will come back to him and know what he is really like. That's what Ben read about earlier. If you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you. Do you know that verse is in there so that you'll believe it and start confessing to God your sins and know the gracious response you'll receive? In the Bible is where we see God's justice and his mercy combine. We see him punish sin, and we see him show sinners mercy. And those come together in Jesus as God crushes Jesus, the innocent one, so that the guilty ones might walk away free, innocent, clean, new, 
with a fresh start. So I'm not saying this isn't true in verse 16, but I'm saying we need to understand what it means. David says, God doesn't delight in sacrifices or else I would have done it. God does delight in sacrifices, just not yours. He's not impressed by your sacrifices. He is so impressed with Jesus' sacrifice. That does matter to him. And that's what he's given to you. That's what he holds out to you. Freely, without payment, without price. He does delight in that sacrifice. Very much so. The last thing is, true confession or true repentance really does change us. It doesn't leave us in a place of despair. Please hear this if you've said so far, if you're thinking, man, this is heavy. Man, this is bad news. Do you see how David walks away from his interaction with God about his guilt? Does he leave down in the dumps, moping like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh, always this dark cloud over him? I'm so despairing. I'm so discouraged. I'm awful. This will never get better. Or did David, did his hopes begin to rise and he says, there's a new day. I'm going to live to fight another day. There's a fresh start. David goes out of there looking forward to a new tomorrow because of God forgiving him freely. He starts saying things like, I will teach transgressors your way. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. Because of God's grace in the face of your guilt, you get to walk away from him confident that there's a fresh start. And a thousand times later, when you've done the same thing a thousand times more, there's a fresh start on the other side of it. Because Jesus paid the penalty that the judge demanded that God might save the sinners. My question to you tonight is this. Will you return to the Lord? Christian, non-Christian, don't know where you are. The same question goes out to your ears tonight. Will you come back to the Lord God? David said, forgive me, Lord, and then I will teach sinners your ways. And what will happen? They will come back to you. That hits your ears tonight. Will you come back to God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who came to get people who ran away from you. The light came into the darkness. And we didn't like the light because it exposed us. But you overcame the darkness around us and inside of us so that we might come to you and know you. I pray for those who know you, those who don't know you, that tonight we would see our feet in faith beginning to walk closer to you to start telling the truth about who we really are. We're not good people, but you are a good God. We're not clean people, but you are clean. We're not powerful, but you are. And you are willing and able to renew us and forgive us a thousand times over. That is good news, and we thank you for it. Amen.